Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Hi there, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. We're real-life best friends, but we met playing fake life best friends, Turk and JD, on the sitcom Scrubs. 20 years later, we've decided to rewatch the series one episode at a time and put our memories into a podcast you can listen to at home. We're going to get all our special guest friends like Sarah Chalk, John C. McGinley, Neil Flynn, Judy Reyes. Show creator Bill Lawrence, editors, writers, and even prop masters will tell us about what inspired the series and how we became a family. You can listen to the podcast Fake Doctors, Real Friends with Zach and Donald on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Hello, everybody. How the heck are you doing today? This is Ray Harkins. You are listening to 100 Words or Less, the podcast, in case you accidentally downloaded this. Like, I, I don't know why I have to set up the show like a radio show, but just like, hey, thanks for tuning in here. You downloaded a podcast like completely intentionally. <laughs> But it's like, you know, it's kind of the, uh, the, the familiarity of like the intro where it's like, I know all the podcasts that I listen to where it's like, it's nice to be able to be like, oh yeah, here's, here's the host lead me into the show. Yeah. So I don't know. Do you like it? I email the show 100 words podcast at gmail.com. I love to hear from people. So what do we got this week? We have Rob Pennington, who is a, a, a hardcore legend in my mind. And I know in many of your minds as well, he, uh, sang for a band called by the grace of God also played in Endpoint, also played in black cross, black God. He is a machine when it comes to playing in bands and, uh, the Louisville hardcore slash independent music scene is something I've always been really fascinated with because, uh, I got keyed into it, you know, relatively early on in my, my punk and hardcore life, especially with the ever looming presence at that time of initial records who existed in the Louisville area. And they had great catalogs and just like, there were so many great bands that were coming out 
from there at that particular time. And I just felt like I was like, wow, why is all this stuff coming out from Louisville? It's just so cool. So anyways, Rob came on the show and it was great, but I got to tell you about some other things first. First of all, subscribe to the show. Okay. I know I've been kind of harping on this recently, but, uh, it's a big deal when you subscribe to the show and you get a new episode of this thing downloaded directly to whatever podcast catcher you use and uh, it just helps out the show okay so that way you're not missing any of the the fine fine episodes i'm just dropping hot in your feed your podcast feed so please do that and rockabilia.com if you have not ordered from them by this time i've been bothering you for over a year and you haven't done it yet come on they've got half a million items all legit licensed high quality stuff you're not going to be seeing these horrible horrible bootlegs off of you know, eBay, Amazon, all that stuff. Like I, I've fallen victim to it before and I can't tell you how bummed I am where I'm like, Oh man, I found this rad piece of merch, ordered it one wash done. Rockabilia is not that company and they are great people. It's a small independent run business based out of Minnesota, super ship, super quick shipping times. That's hard to say fast. Uh, and they're just great partners. So PC Jabberjaw, that is the code you can use to get 10% off your order. PC Jabberjaw, dive in there, buy yourself some stuff, buy some friends, some stuff, just, you know, be uh, the gift that keeps on giving year after year by you just, you know, maybe you buy a thousand dollars worth of merch and you give it to your friends over the course of the next three years. You'll be like the favorite of everybody. So thank you, Rockabilia for your continued support. I always appreciate it. And I know that uh, other people do that listen to this show as well. And, um, what do I have going on as well? Uh, my life feels really chaotic right now because, uh, there's a lot of things that are going on. I'm going to New York next week and, uh, for work stuff. And then later on in the month of March, I am going to be, uh, going on tour in Japan, which will be amazing and incredible, but it's just always, you know, when you're, we're planning for trips, it's always kind of stressful or it's like, okay, I got to make sure all the stuff's okay at home going to make sure, uh, you know, everything's all lined up appropriately. And, uh, since I am a person who likes to take care of things, I, uh, you know, that falls on me. And so sometimes it's a little bit stressful, but, uh, it'll all be fun stuff and you will still be getting episodes. I know you were really concerned. You're like, Ray, you can't be traveling cause you can't be not dropping episodes. Don't worry. I got it all taken care of. And, uh, please stay tuned to the very, very end of the show because I will be announcing all of March is a themed month and I love themed months and I know that you do as well. So stay tuned to the very, very end of the episode. Stay tuned. Gosh, keep using all this radio vernacular. It's ridiculous. But anyways, Rob Pennington was a spectacular guest and he came on via Josh Robbins, who is uh, plays in a band called late bloomer also lives in uh, North Carolina. Um, Rob Pennington recently moved to North Carolina. So that's how I got connected with, with Rob from that connection. And, um, it was, uh, I, I was a little bit nervous because Rob Pennington, like he kind of loomed large in my life. Like I just, I'd never met him before. We had never really run across each other. Uh, I never got to see by the grace of God. Uh, I really got into them, you know, like when, when they released that perspective record and, um, yeah, so he just kind of was like this, this figure that kind of like existed out there. And when I was able to uh, hop on the phone with him, it was great, which I knew it was going to be, but. I just like it when those, uh, those, those expectations I have of people are, uh, met and delivered where it's like, yes, you are a great human. And that's what all of my friends have said about you. So you fall right into that. I love it. <clears throat> Anyways, here's Rob and I will talk to you after the episode is over.
and it was uh you know so i'm i'm 38 so you know definitely in the wheelhouse of the you know mid 90s hardcore explosion and uh it, it was only after i got into uh guilt via you know victory records that sure. i that i recognized how like incredibly fertile the louisville music scene was and like just how diverse the sounds were that were coming from that area. And then, you know, Endpoint came into my life after that. And I specifically remember hearing about the like massive shows from, you know, these bands that rivaled the shows that happened on both the coasts. Cause you know, you always hear about big shows in LA or New York city. Um, And I realized this is probably like a pretty big question to start things off with, but you know, did you feel that like most bands in the Midwest had to work, I guess, harder to be recognized or did you even kind of put that in a a thought in your head? You know, I think when we were young, we, um, that was a chip on our shoulder, right. That we maybe weren't as acknowledged by the coasts. Um, I remember that we kind of took pride the first time we rolled up and played New Jersey and we're like, look at these guys with their sweatsuits and their hair slicked back. What is this? This is a punk. Like, um, uh, you know, and it was silly. It was young guy pride of coming from Kentucky. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess so. I mean, I, I always felt like we, I think a lot of bands from that area kind of, which is good and bad. I think it drove us to do some unique things and gave us some independence in the way that we approach things. But uh, um, often, I think a lot of bands felt they weren't heard by, you know, you had the coast bands. Uh, and of course you had like the Midwest, like we think of Chicago and we weren't too far from Chicago, but that was a kind of a whole different genre, uh, of bands that were really popular at that time coming out. So yeah, to answer your question, I, I mean, I think we did, I don't think it made us work harder, but I think that we took pride in, um, who we were being from that Midwest. Sure. That makes sense. Cause I, I do think that there is that notion, you know, everyone obviously calls it the flyover States for a reason. And I think it, no matter what happens from an entertainment perspective, most people, you know, look to the, <laughs> the cultural, uh, you know, hubs of the country as opposed to like, Oh yeah, Louisville, like that's the center of, of, of where it all, where all is happening. But I just, like I said, I was so excited when I found out about it that I'm like, Oh my gosh. And like the diversity of all these bands too, was really impressive to me. Oh, it was crazy. I mean, we grew up on some, um, you know, having a lot of unique influences. I mean, of course we had the external influences coming into our record store, uh, at that time. But I mean, we had, you know, people that were doing a lot more kind of arty things. We had, you know, I grew up listening to two bands from Louisville, one was Solution Unknown, uh, which I mean, I just wore out. That was my like early teens, like following that band everywhere. And then I had this friend, Myron Hardesty, who was kind of the older kid by neighborhood. And, uh, he was like, you're ready for this now. And he passed me this, uh, fading out, uh, recording, which actually came out, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. They found they put it out on, on, I think drag city. Um, and, and I mean, I love, love it to death. You would not recognize, I mean, I don't know if other people would appreciate it as much as I did, but I just thought it was the best thing in the whole world. I still listen to it. And we actually covered a endpoint did this seven inch of really bad covers, great songs, but we don't know how well we covered them. And, uh, we did one of their songs on that, uh, on that seven inch, but yeah, man, they were, it was, it was a fantastic time to, to kind of grow up in Louisville. And then when we were playing, you know, it's like, there wasn't, 
we all had our own thing early on. So, you know, Endpoint was kind of your traditional hardcore band. And then we had Cerebellum that was really moving towards more of a DC Chicago sound that, you know, evolved in the crane. And then, um, my brain's going dead because then the day, um, no problem. Oh my gosh. Uh, Matmos, uh, Anyway, sure. <laughs> Daniels, okay. yes, yeah. Drew Daniels. You there know, you he went to the coast and did electronic music, and like so. Anyway, there was just all these really fantastic things that were happening at that time. It was really fun. It wasn't until later when iterations of each of these bands that were doing these things, you know, people started having their kind of collective, um, started develop these kind of independent scenes within this other scene in Louisville. It was really great because everything was really smashed together. So every show, you know, you would have bands of very different genres, even up until it really wasn't until by the grace of God that we would have shows that was all hardcore bands on. And that was really cool about Louisville and probably other, many other Midwest scenes because we just had such few bands and, you know, some kids actually picked up the judge record and some kids picked up the, you know, this other genre of music. And then, so there, there wasn't a choice, but to play together. And I thought that was really good for the listeners. I think it was probably good for us too. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause it, it does. I mean, everyone always, you know, looks back at their time of getting into punk and hardcore and been like, Oh yeah, so many different bands, you know, played together just be out of necessity because, you know, there was the, the scene wasn't as uh, fully developed as it is, you know, now or even 10 years ago. Um, but you know, there is, there is truth to it where it's like, well, yeah, that <laughs> there weren't any weird band that fell outside of the ecosystem of what was considered, you know, rock or independent music. Do you kind of, you know, you just stuck to yourself and it's like, yeah, we'll play with a quote unquote emo band and a hardcore band. Cause it all makes sense. Oh yeah. I mean, we had, we, I'm trying to remember all the bands, but we had, a, um, Endpoint had this record called Aftertaste and we did a record release show and we had to play two nights to be able to fill, get everybody in. And on that bill was like, it was Endpoint, it was Rodan, and it was Spitboy, and I think it was Greyhouse, and uh, Rain Like the Sound of Trains, and like, it was just this crazy, awesome, you know, just mix of diverse bands, which I think, you know, that happened all the time back then, which was the coolest. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really sad at my age. It's really hard to go to a show where there's, you know, first of all where there's sure more than three bands but then when they all start sounding a whole lot alike like it's just it's, it's just hard to attend mm-hmm. yeah absolutely it definitely i i understand what you're saying um kind of putting the, the focal point on you um i know you were born in louisville and i'm kind of piecing this together obviously from other interviews that you've done um and you're an only child um the uh i, I identify with that as well because i'm an only child so we stick together yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the um the city in general, like Louisville, has always struck me as a you know a, a Midwest vibe, clearly. But there is a ton of art and culture that exists in that area. Um, whereas most people in the Midwest are like, oh yeah, like you know, I live in Omaha. Like you know, even though there's a lot of good music in there, sometimes it's you know doesn't get focused on. Um, when did you kind of notice that there was stuff happening? I guess outside of the context of what you know maybe your your peers were doing in you know elementary school or junior high and stuff like that. Um, you know, it really wasn't, so you kind of, it's, you've asked kind of a complex question. So one, um, you're right in terms of Louisville is a really, I believe it's a unique city. Of course I'm biased. I spent most of my life there, but even to this day, like it's just it's exploded in terms of 
art in terms of like vegan restaurants. We have this like vegan corner now where there's just like a, all these restaurants right there. Like there's, I mean, music, there's wonder, I mean, wonderful visual artists. There's great beat poet. It's just a really cool, funky town. And, and, and that has all, I, I think that's been the case for a long period of time. Of course it was a lot more gritty in the eighties. Um, it could, because it wasn't cool, you know, to, to the things that I guess had been uh, pejoratively called hipster now, but that stuff wasn't as cool to craft and whatever. Uh, so it wasn't accepted as much by the mainstream, but I mean, Louisville has always been a really unique town. Um, I think I first found that, um, through skateboarding, right? So I have found, I was in probably, I think I heard the music first, right? So I had a couple friends that were into, you know, my, our paper boy had a mohawk and he's a couple of years older. And um, I was like, what's that all about? I was really disenfranchised. I think there were some financial things that were happening to my family at that time that were causing some stress and really making me turn and turn on to kind of like uh, social class, which led into kind of social justice issues. Um, I was suddenly being exposed to things about racism. I mean, my, my dad was, was a, a a sweet person in many ways, but also carries that kind of racial, uh, I guess some bigotry, right? He's an old kind of country guy. Um, but those things were also coming to the light. And then I was, I was enjoying, um, so I started some, some kid in high school gave me music. You know, it was probably, I started listening. I had, I, there was a friend, Christy Canfield, who in middle school started, I was really into heavy metal. So like proto, I mean, early hair metal, not like poison, whatever, but like shout out the devil and, and rat and some of the kind of the earlier uh, hair metal bands. Um, and that was kind of my freak. Always loved and still love to this day. Ozzy Osbourne. It's funny. I like solo Ozzy before I even knew what black Sabbath was. Um, and so I was already, trying to explore and find things that were different. I was under a lot of stress, just kind of bullied little kid. Um, and then I found some other kids that were bullied that were kind of skateboarder punk kids. Um, and I found that I could, I just, you know, I felt comfortable in that group and some of the kids were older. So it gave me some confidence. Um, and through that I was exposed to, things that were very different than my parents had uh, exposed me to. So like, my parents were both workaholics, both kind of white middle class Christian folks, you know, and here I am hanging out in this um, kind of underbelly, I guess, of Louisville where you know, we're hanging out with older kids in the eighties. I mean, they were, which was scary at that time, but it was just such a stark contrast that it provided space to grow between. So we'd be hanging out with older kids and they're doing cocaine and, you know, there's crazy fights at shows and there's all sorts of, and you're inter- being introduced to different types of lifestyles. The first time I was introduced knowingly to, uh, people, to gay kids, um, there were all these things that were happening all at once at a very early age that I think provided fodder for me to kind of reevaluate the way the world was painted for me by my parents. Um, and through that, you know, we'd be able to look for every opportunity to find something different and unique within Louisville. And then, a, of course, a part of it, we started to specialize in ourselves, like, oh, this is, you know, which as we get older, we realize that 
we all like to be special and whether you're a football player or a hardcore kid it's real we're really into tribalism and team membership but that was the narrative that i painted for myself i really wanted to um uh, dig deeper into understanding and accepting other lifestyles no it's great i i really i like how that picture that you painted because there definitely is uh you know i mean no matter what (laughs) parental situation you come into you're always going to have you know baggage that you have to shed whether it's you know uh, familial strife or whether it's you know upbringings views all that stuff it's kind of this mixture and you know sometimes you don't you're never given the ability to kind of question that um you know usually obviously in your teenage years is that's when you start to you know bristle and push against it but i just like that picture that you painted because you know there's there's definitely nothing simple about uh, all those things that you start to grapple with but it's only through the exposure to the other side is when you start to be like oh there's people that think differently and there's people that like like you said you know you, you started on this journey of, of of you know kind of acceptance of the fact that oh yeah there's a whole different lifestyle out here you know there's there's two other things i want to add one is that you know it wasn't like this smooth awakening you know i did a lot of dumbass stuff i'm sure i you know, was being called fag and beat up as a little kid. But at the same time, I probably used those words when I was 14. So I didn't know any better. And I mean, it was a very clumsy, um, learning process, uh, because there's so many other competing factors being kind of a young male boy. But the other part of that is I think that by letting that sink in, I think that has really helped me. I'm all like anybody else gets, I get fucking furious when I think of, you know, some of the things that comes out of, come out of people's mouths and I sometimes have taken pretty hard stances, but it's also helped me understand that even folks that I don't agree with, um, do have a different perspective. And I think it's been very helpful for me in my personal life. Um, but it's also been helpful in um, in my work. And so basically what I'm saying is that I think we've lost that and we lose that sometimes uh, we've, you know, punk has become so tribalized and, and people will argue vehemently that's the purpose of it. But I also think that like even undergirthing punk or, or is this the, the, this rebellious idea that of freedom that people are able to express themselves and the way that they live. And really that should only be a problem when it comes into contact of harming other people. Um, and it's really hard to swallow. You know, it's really easy for me. I live in a very insulated circle, you know, with some, um, and, uh, we, it's really easy to get, uh, shit talking about people that may be from a different political viewpoint or whatever, especially when I got my old friends will do it, but I always have to kind of step back and remind myself that these people were shaped into that. they those behaviors. They're not bad people. They just have, they just sometimes do things that are harmful to other folks. Yeah. And I think that's really cool of what, that's, that's probably the most important lesson that I think maybe not. I didn't get that from punk, but I get it, got it from my journey into punk. Yeah, no, I really, really appreciate that. that. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different things that stress us out, right? Like maybe it's something really, really small, like, man, that parking space, it's always taken. And I wish that I would be able to like get it instead of, you know, this person that maybe, you know, is the most courteous and considerate. 
I know that's something very random, but it's true. We all experience different things throughout the day that trigger us in so many different ways. And there are many times where I have been like, I wish that I had a a spot or a repository for me to, you know, get this stuff off of my chest. Because if you bottle it up, that is no bueno. And then all of a sudden you explode on a coworker or a friend or a family member being like the parking spot. And people are like, what are you talking about? That is where therapy comes in. And I love working with BetterHelp because I'm a huge advocate for therapy, broadly speaking. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, please give BetterHelp a try. It is so easy because it's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you do is fill out a brief questionnaire, and then you get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you are not vibing with the therapist for any reason, you can switch it out at no additional charge. Get things off of your chest with BetterHelp. So visit BetterHelp.com slash Ray today to get 10% off of your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Ray. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. Hi, Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the back seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Uh, that button to that idea because yeah it's it's very simple to you know when you're whatever 14 15 years old to completely uh you know shut the world out that you don't agree with and it's easy to exist like that but then once you step out into the you know more adult world you can still hold tight to your principles and everything else but then you realize that there are other people that you know that aren't the enemy they just have you know i i always phrase it where it's like i just feel incredibly lucky that i tripped across this thing known as, you know, subculture and punk and hardcore that introduced me to different ideas, but you know, not everybody, uh, had that exposure. So I can't fault them for that. I can't say like, Oh, you're wrong because you haven't been exposed to that. You know, it's just, it's a weird, yeah, it's a weird dichotomy. That's for sure. In a world where everyone is confined to their homes, society begins its largest bin watch to date in the hallowed library of Hulu, or perhaps on a shelf of DVDs you haven't looked at in a decade is a show that perfectly encapsulates life in the early aughts and launched a friendship that would inspire millions. Hi, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. In 2001, we starred in Scrubs, a sitcom that revealed a glimpse of what it was like to survive a medical internship. As Turk and JD, we explored guy love. Nearly 20 years later, a lot has changed. We're not supermen. 
but we're still best friends. Eh. Given the mandatory lockdown, there's no better time to relive the series that brought us together in the first place. And we're doing it with a podcast. That's right, people. We're going to bring friends and crew members and fellow cast members and writers. And and guess what? We're going to even invite some of you to call into the podcast and ask all the questions you want of the entire Sacred Heart staff. Join us for Fake Doctors, Real Friends on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. So, um the uh you know you met you've mentioned in previous interviews that you were uh, you were primed for being bullied which i i, I found uh, funny that you kind of phrased it as such um but you know most people look at the you know recorded output that you have and are like oh yeah like you know you can be on stage and kind of you know be confident in your own skin from that perspective um but was there an element of like you know were you like kind of like a quiet kid growing up or was you know did the the bullies kind of identify that fact in you or how did that uh, manifest itself um i think that um so i spent a lot of time by myself so even to this day i'm still a little awkward i mean i'm i'm pretty good in, in certain contexts i guess um i but I don't know. <laughs> so parents forgot a lot. They worked very hard. I was uh, spent a lot of time alone. Did a lot of going home from school, unlocking the door, you know, latchkey kind of stuff. I was really into nerdy fantasy. I remember as a little kid, some Je- you know, in my mind, I think it's Jehovah's Witnesses, but I don't know why they would have dropped this up. It's some strange door-to-door salesmen were selling these records and one of them was the hobbit you know lp with like a little gatefold with pictures inside and i remember just being like ah listen to that i mean of course i love star wars i loved anything that i could do to escape so it further drew you know drew me away from um you know i wasn't great at sports uh my parents wouldn't let me have a mullet which i really wanted like a zipper cut because i was gonna have metal so (laughs) of course that's like you gotta have that yeah yeah had a pair of glasses that were Battlestar Galactica brand. I mean, come on. Like it was, uh, and I was a pretty nice kid. I wasn't really good at, um, doing the hierarchy game, I don't think. And so, uh, you know, I wasn't strong, especially as a middle schooler. I was kind of a pudgy little fella. And so, you know, it just was, um, and I was kind of a goodie. Like I, I remember this kid was like, fuck you on the bus. And I was like, don't use that word. And he was and I remember him saying, well, that's how you were born. And I was like, what? And I went home and I was like, mom, was I born by fuck? And she's like, oh, you know, like, got me a book. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, it really wasn't until I found that group of kids that like kind of tutored me into being a normal, confident kid. Sure. It really was. I mean, I, you know, I, I owe that a lot to Duncan too. I think Duncan was a great friend of mine. Like his, you know, he was a little wilder than I was. Um, his parents had gone through a divorce. Um, he was living with his dad and he, you know, he lived in the basement. So he had some freedom there. And, um, you know, we just, we had a great growing up together. And I think that really kind of helped me figure out who I was so I could be more confident. And, um, you know, I had a, I had a good group of friends. That's awesome. No, that's really, I, I, yeah, I like I just, yeah, I, I really like the, the fashion in which you kind of lay it out. It's always a, uh, yeah, good job. It's like you've done an interview before, right? 
I mean, I really, maybe it's because, I, I mean, seriously, I've been writing a paper all day, so maybe it's just like, blah, 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 but it's another topography to vomit these words. Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, so. Yeah, it's perfect. Um, so I guess kind of, you know, as you were, you know, growing up and, and kind of wrapping your head around, you know, what the, uh, the next steps were as far as the, uh, quote unquote life plan that you're supposed to head into, um, was there any notion of that? Or basically once music kind of came part of your ecosystem, that was the primary focus, or did you have, you know, the, the kind of teaching aspirations that, uh, you, you know, are currently presiding or where was your head at? Uh, you know what? I always, um, kind of had a focus on what I, I was always nervous about music. Um, and I think it was to the chagrin of some of my bandmates, you know, like, um, I was, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly cautious person, I think. And so I was always scared, you know, like I think I took one semester off of school, um, to maybe do some touring or something like that. And like, I just couldn't go for it music wise. And so I was always, in school getting things you know doing what i'm doing what i thought would also be help i didn't want to put eggs in a basket um and i think we missed a lot of opportunities because of that you know i did um so i, I was a peer tutor in middle school and so at that time i kind of was interested in kids with disabilities um started doing some work um in college or like really early college doing some respite work with families doing some communication instruction with kids with autism uh, and then started teaching as soon as i was out of college and so so i so i taught full-time i did uh, um so it was crazy this i was even at an end point and we were like you know driving up to boston we had day off on a friday so we drive up to boston or some 20-hour drive and get back just in time to play a show and we do summer tours and winter break tours um and then i mean i've been playing i guess i've been in consecutive bands for about 30 god over 30 years now and so you know um i've just been able to do that with through my doctoral program through you know through my professor work um of course it diminishes as, as your jobs become more intense, but right, right, of you course. have less energy, but yeah, I've just kind of always, I've always loved music. I never want to stop One of the challenges of being here, moving to North Carolina is that we're like, uh, don't have folks to play with. Um, by the grace of God, still doing some shows every now and then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, yeah, so that that's, that's my biggest fear is like, Oh, I got to stop playing music. So I really, <laughs> yeah, well, you just, to you, just have to pick, Correct. you just got to pick your spots now. And that's, I think that's what is so fun and engaging about the fact that, you know, um, this actually dovetails nicely into my next, next question where, um, you know, with, uh, as you started to, you know, really dive into independent music and, you know, you and Duncan Barlow were, you know, bouncing bands off each other and, you know, discovering everything, um, it, this it was obviously it was a very fertile time for independent music and you know a lot of band starting and all that stuff but discoverability was you know you reading thanks lists and you know looking at seven inches and going to distro tables and stuff like that were you just basically devouring everything that you possibly could get your hands on yeah and you know i think in terms of experiences for sure you know one thing that i'm not really so when i was younger a hundred percent going to record stores trying to find you know just reading what as I got older my brain got filled with kind of half work career half music so I've never been a guy like I don't have a giant record collection I've got my favorite records right as um and and so but 
the experiences, yes. So it's like, you want to go play here? Yes. You want to, you know, I like, I traveled all the time. Like even when I wasn't touring, you know, I would get in the car from Louisville and drive 13 hours up to New York city just to hang out with my music friends and spend time in the city and see what that's like. Like, you know, when we're in college, like what's really, and this isn't as exciting as the punk side of it, but again, opening those doors to different environments and touring made me hungry to experience more of the world. And so again, like every opportunity to do fun things, I did that and that was kind of conditioning me through playing music. Of course, I still want to go to, you know, if I was in a different town, I wanted to go to the record store. You know, I've been a vegan for a long time. So I'm like, oh, where's the best vegan restaurants? I still like sometimes will play or even travel for work. It's conditional upon like, is there anything really good to eat there? Um, which is sad, a very sad state. But um, yeah, I mean, I definitely early on and and again there were so i had we had such we had friends with such diverse tastes in louisville that we were lots of different things were were thrown at us it's fun to have a couple you know growing up being a mostly hardcore bands or whatever that means um traditional kind of hardcore bands i you know i didn't listen to a whole lot of that i mean i did and i still do but not that's not the primary you know i, I really like more DC kind of hardcore bands and like favorite band of all time is probably laughing hyenas, you know, but, um, I think it's just a result of coming from such a unique coming from going back to the first question, going back, coming back coming from Louisville and having such a unique circle of friends. Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. I, I do like, I, I like your description of the, uh, you know, kind of collecting adventures because it is, uh, I think that's how most people that, you know, kind of came up with in the context of playing in bands, but not having any sort of idea that you can turn this into a quote unquote career. It's you're just like, well, yeah, I'm going to keep touring because like, you know, this is going to end. Um, but I don't, I don't know, I don't know when, but like, you know, I'm going to keep collecting these adventures, you know, I'm not going to oh. stop. We played the other night uh, in Louisville and I had to embarrass my bands. I was like, we did a cell, we did like a self-imposed encore because I was like, well, we know more songs. They're like, they're done. I was like, can we play more songs? They've got, they started getting off the stage, and they're like, yeah, okay. All right. They got back up on the stage, and I was like, well, and I was like, you never know. This might be the last time we get to play. You know, and so it's, true. it's just going like that. You know, it's like, don't try not to plan that much. It's like, let's just keep, if there's an opportunity, I don't, you know, I don't care. Hey, I'm going to interrupt the discussion of this particular show to tell you about another podcast. A friend of mine works on it. And uh, this seems extremely entertaining. So James Kennedy, for those of you that are super deep in the reality show ecosystem, he is on Vanderpump Rules and his podcast is called It's Not About the Podcast. So he himself is DJ, kind of does that whole, you know, electronic music scene. And he has discussions with interesting people like, and I will be the first to tell you, I've literally not heard of one of these people, but this is of course, like that's not my, my scene per se. So he's had like the blame heartthrob black Elvis BLK and legendary house DJ, DJ Irene. So they're sharing music because after all, that's what this show does. We share music and then sometimes create live in the studio. They have freestyle battles and they also play something called space trivia because apparently he loves space and wants to talk about aliens 
which is awesome. So I've checked out the show. It's super fun. It's, it's really uh, interesting to hear people kind of work in real time together and kind of create a song like that. That's a cool vibe, right? Whether or not you are a huge fan of reality TV or DJs or anything like that, there is something to be gained from listening to this show. So don't miss a single episode. Subscribe to It's Not About the Podcast on Himalaya, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or obviously wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to it. It's fun. Like I said, a friend of mine works on it. It's enjoyable. Okay. Check it out. We're kind of focusing on, uh, and I apologize. I'm kind of, you know, jumping around here, but you know, trying, trying to make it somewhat, uh, linear in fashion with, uh, with endpoint, it seemed like the emotional output was, you know, unlike most bands that kind of existed in the hardcore scene and honestly had encountered that point as far as the crowd was concerned. I presume a lot of the impact that the band had on you was, you know, because of that, like, was it, um, I guess, was it overwhelming for you? Like, you know, as you were kind of putting all of this out there and being really exposed and vulnerable, um, and then obviously getting the feedback from the people who were also expressing those level of emotions. Um, you know, did, did you kind of feel that sort of, uh, and not in a negative way, but just in the like, man, it is exhausting getting up there and like crying and then having people crying, <laughs> crying with me after the show and that sort of stuff. Or was it just all super exciting? Um, you know, it was like, it was simultaneously wonderful, I guess, because you're getting feedback on something that is coming from you. You know, it's, it's, I guess you get that same hype that you get when you create some sort of fantastic art piece that people respond to. And I mean, it's, I know that it's not the same, but there's a little bit of that and they're like, man, people connected tonight and you feel really good about that connection. Right. But then I think long term, it also, you know, it's also really difficult. I felt, you know, I um, was depressed a lot. I was uh, not good to my body. There were periods of time when I was not eating a whole lot, which was weird. Um, On stage, I hurt myself a bunch. Like, I just kind of like, was under a lot of stress. I remember one semester in school, like I had just totally freaked out and, um, and it, you know, and it's complex in the, in a young person's mind, how all that's working. I remember feeling like I was kind of haunted. I couldn't snap out sometimes of depression. I remember going to a psychiatrist at one point. Um, and I was just, um, yeah, you know, it was wonderful looking back and being through it. It's like, man, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I mean, there's the, the connection there. One, it, people from that time, I feel like I was able to positively impact their lives, even for a few moments or an hour during a show. People felt, some people feel very connected to that band. Um, I feel very connected to that band because it is such a, an intense time. Uh, it was such an intense time. It really bonded me closely to, to some of my bandmates um, and the people from those times. I, still, most, I know many of them still today. Um, so I have a lot of good friendships from them. But yeah, it was it was it was weird. It was you know it kind of snapped. I think we were really sincere, uh, but it really changed around the time this album Catharsis came out and. We were all kind of having a bad time. I remember we were playing in Chicago, and we all just kind of flipped out when we played, and it just felt really good. And then somehow from then on, it just that just was kind of the shows were fun, but they were also an opportunity to just kind of 
get everything out. Um, and then when that started changing for different people in the band, then it became a little bit different. And I think that's when Endpoint started kind of fading and we decided to break up. I don't know if that was a great answer to your question, but it was, no, uh, no I, I, it totally was because I think that, uh, yeah, you, you played it out appropriately. So it's <laughs> like you're, you, you, you are being held up as this advocate for other people. And I thought we tried to be that way. I mean, it's not like the songs were like, yo, bro, brotherhood. Like, I mean, there was a little bit of that in early endpoint, but it really was about personal stuff. And I think for some reason, people really connected to some of those songs and it made us feel there was a lot of pressure because you felt like you had to live up to those, but you're also an imperfect person, especially growing up in an imperfect context. Um, and so you, you know, there were times in the band where our natural urges, you know, we'd be silly and say something dumb or, or, you know, like I'm always worried about how people would view us or we, I was, I was always worried that people wouldn't live, we wouldn't live up to people's expectations. And it was just, you know, it was kind of a bum out. It wasn't really, it's funny, by the grace of God was kind of totally different. We were less into ourselves. Um, we were, that was, I mean, that was a thread through a lot of those songs, but in Endpoint, my lyrics, a lot of that I was speaking to myself. And by the grace of God, I think we were. I was trying to speak to other people. I was older than my late 20s. I wanted to positively impact other folks. And so the audience changed. Um, and I think that, that there's a distinct difference uh, for me in those two different bands that way. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. The, um, you know, as you were, you know, playing in, in, you know, in point and then, you know, by the grace of God, you know, both of those, like, you know, you were selling merch and you were getting paid to play shows and, you know, the business started to, you know, become a thing that you obviously had to, you know, consider and, and take care of. Did you ever care about that? Or was that something that you were like, other people can take care of that. I just don't, uh, I don't, I don't have a sense for it. Um, how did that sit in your head? Um, yeah, I, that wasn't me. I'm not very, I wasn't very good at that. Duncan is really good at managing some of those things. We had a, a roadie for a long time. who was like a manager. He was a manager, essentially Andy Tinsley and during Endpoint. like as long as people were, as long as we could play shows and go forward, like it really didn't, I wasn't very, very Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If if you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Check the back seat. 
Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot, fast, and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela Yee is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yimby's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. (laughs) What is wrong with you? Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. Connected to, to that piece, like it just like oh okay sure a cool shirt design that'd be awesome like I yeah I'm I'm, I'm notoriously terrible at the details. <laughs> Got it. Hey, I mean it's good that you know that because there are definitely people that feel uh, you know that they are inadequate there, but they also are just like, well, I, I guess I have to do this because, you know, I'm a working member of the band or whatever. And, then, you know, oh, I'll, I'll take care of the shirt designs. And then all of a sudden, you know, two days before tour, you don't have any shirt designs. It's like, oh, crap. I yeah, so I, I will hold that to give that to Duncan. Duncan is the bat was the best when it came to um, like shirt designs. Duncan was a good was that was was great at marketing the band. He really is a very, a very connected, very thoughtful person like um he had a he had a good vision. He has a good he had a good vision for the kind of um, not the aesthetic. I think of, of, of those bands. And same thing with Ryan. So I don't know. Like you know, I merged into the black bands in the two thousands, and uh, and and Ryan had had has an amazing sense of aesthetic. And so he you know a whole different kind of feel. But um, I, I you know feel like the sometimes the Tasmanian devil you know the little cartoon where he opens the box and blah, 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 that, that's kind of me it's like put me on stage and all right I'll do my thing and run around and but I'm not never really good at kind of the finances or um, I mean I, we would have ideas especially I was really you know like making lyric sheets and you know we need to dress up like this and do this and like some of those things early in, in the early days were things i get really excited about that like we should we could try this um but yeah not overall right not, 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 not your corner <laughs> sure yeah. sure hey guys it's jack o'brien co-founder of crack.com and i host a twice daily news and culture podcast with the funniest person I know, Miles Gray. What an honor. Uh, it's what an true, honor. Miles. Please, tell, Please tell them more about how hilarious I am. Don't tell them about my background in politics as a political operative or anything like that. Just keep going on about the funny. I wasn't going to. Okay, that's fine. Guys, you can come get caught up on what is happening without feeling the life drain out of your soul at the Daily Zeitgeist. You can find us on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever fine podcasts are given away for free um and kind of on that same point too you know once uh once by the grace of god started to you know get formed and clearly there was an agenda for the band and you were able to you know take things a little bit more seriously because you were you know older and you had more experience and knowing how to you know maybe not play 
shows in front of, you know, negative 40 people. Um, was there ever kind of a conversation of, you know, taking this quote unquote more seriously or being like, you know, a real kind of career band or was that, um, something that, you know, you guys just, you know, once you signed with victory and did all that, that it, it started to become more real or was it just kind of always like, Oh yeah, one step in one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Like that. I think, um, at the end of Endpoint, there were some discussions, you know, cause right at that time, all these really, all these bands were getting signed by A and R reps, like the kind of, you know, they got dropped immediately. But um, it, I remember we people were we were drawing really big shows, so people were interested in us that way. And so we had some discussions about what would that look like. And again, we were really young. Yeah. Uh, well, to, to interrupt, your, to interrupt your train of thought, I'm interested in like who, like you know, what labels were like you know, were you talking to like you know, Revelation and that sort of stuff, or was it like even more you know, weird with like major labels kind of sniffing around? No, I remember there was something with the. Um, I remember, I, don't, I remember the show and the discussions. Um, shit, who was it? Who was signed? Was it Atlantic that was signing bunches of small bands at that time? It was, it was one of the major labels. And sure. so there were discussions about, um, what, would, you know, what would we do? Should we go for, you know, and, and at that time, unfortunately it was also, the, I mean, fortunately for me, cause I'm really happy with my kind of life choices, but the, um, it was also, that was at the time that when our band was under the most stress and we were getting ready to break up. And so, that was the closest, you know, especially since we did that last record, which, you know, none of the Endpoint songs are, to me, they hold up emotionally, but they, you know, they don't sound the greatest because our recording experience was not, um, we could, we were just learning that craft and it wasn't as accessible, you know, people couldn't do things themselves like they, like they do now. Um, but, um, it was, you know, it was the last, kind of around the last record after Taste had a couple more poppy tunes to it. And it was like, uh, but yeah, I, I don't, it was a small, um, point in time. And then from then on, I was like, here's what we do. You know, we play, I always knew that I was continuing to work in this field. Duncan was interested in going to college and, and work on his writing career. I mean, um, so we always knew, I think we always we wanted to do as much as we could, but I think we all, we always knew that we were not full time. Um, or at least I knew uh, that I would not be our major, source of life um uh emphasis i guess so duncan does duncan's always involved and with his writing and his other bands like he probably he is he is a musician right whereas i am a guy that loves to play shows and loves being around people and loves hardcore or punk and music but i'm i'm not a musician and i don't see that as my uh moniker or the, the tag that you would put on me. Sure. Not on my tombstone. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that makes sense. But I, I'm sure, I, I'm sure it was interesting, you know, having that kind of focal point with the fact that, you know, you were putting out a record on victory, which, you know, at the time was arguably one of the biggest independent labels in regards to, you know, punk and hardcore. Um, so I, I'm sure in some respects there was, a little uh, anticipation, not so much on your end, but uh, on other people's oh, yeah. ends, that there was like, oh my gosh, yeah. this is going to be a thing. Yeah, of course that, because we want you know, more opportunities. I mean, when we signed the Equal Vision, a Black Cross, we're like, oh, that's awesome. You know, like, we just thought it'd be a good opportunity. And um, yeah, it's always better to, to go to a label that 
you have more opportunities and more exposure, um, you can, you know, at that time you really, like I said, you needed better, more money to be able to record. Um, and so, yeah, we were always really excited about that. And, you know, there, there was some riff with, 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 um, victory at one point, but I appreciate all the labels that, uh, continue to put out, you know, put out our records to give this a shot. It was awesome that, you know, I like equal vision with black cross. We weren't consistent with the other bands we were doing and we were, our songs had a billion parts and they're like, dun, 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 dun. like, yeah, it's there, challenging. Yeah. It's like, we knew that we weren't, I think they knew that we weren't going to sell millions of copies, but you know, the owner, um, Steve was like, you know, well, we just like what you say, what you say, and we like what you stand for. And it was, that was cool. You know, it's like, thanks man. Steve, Steve ready. Yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> um, and, and then with your relationship with, with touring, you know, I mean, you, you did touring and you did a substantial amount of stuff with, you know, all the bands that you played in, uh, how has your relationship been with touring? Like, did you, you know, enjoy it from the beginning and then grew to kind of, you know, get tired of it because it is, you know, a grueling way of life or has it always been, um, something that you've enjoyed? You know, I, early on, Maybe the first couple, there were a couple tours that I didn't enjoy because we were young people and we would, people would just get so frustrated with each other. It's a bunch of strong personalities. But as I got older, um, I, I enjoyed them a lot. I mean, I love, we went two years ago to Europe and some of the other guys were like, this is terrible. This is hard. And I was like, no, I love it. You know, because there are a couple strengths that I have. They're kind of like superpowers. One is that I can sleep in a van no matter what's going on. So essentially during the worst, something bad is happening or we're stuck or it's miserable outside, I'll just sleep. And then I'm, then I'm up and ready, driving my bells crazy. Like, okay, let's go to the show. Let's do this. You know? And, um, so that's a superpower that I have. Um, the, uh, and now for me, it's just, again, it's like, holy crap. I get to play shows. Um, I get to go to other countries. I get to go to other states and do something that I really, really enjoy. So, I mean, uh, I love it. Now, and, and, but also note this. We never, ever, I think our longest tour was like six weeks or two months, maybe, with Endpoint. And it was kind of broken in half. Um, I've, we've never done that type of touring in my whole life. You know, it's like four weeks, six weeks. The, and then we're done because again, I've always had school or work. And so for me, it's, it's always been paired with a break from an even more stressful, um, position or, or, or work that has to be done. So to me, I love it. Now there's, there's, there's been a couple crappy. I was really, I remember I was really depressed and probably a pain in the ass in 1992 when we toured Europe. Um, Again, it was amazing because it was the first time I'd ever been there. But again, it was like not a good emotional time for many of us in the band. Uh, but every other time has been pretty awesome. Nice, nice. That's cool. Yeah, it's. Uh, I know it's just such a uh, fraught relationship with touring once it becomes more of a like I have to do this because it's my livelihood and then you know it turns into a job and then people's relationships kind of you know bounce in and out of enjoying it or whatever so I was just curious you know since you've never (laughs) relied solely on the uh (laughs) the band being your your focal point it's funny it's like you know I'm already this uh have contact a lot of privilege in my life right I'm a white male from a middle-class family 
But you know, even in the punk scene, I, I've had privilege. Like I said, I, I selected to also teach and have an income, and like so, I didn't. I wasn't forced to have to do some of these things. Like I could always maintain it. It was always pleasurable. At least the majority of the time, it was pleasurable. Things that I wanted to do. Yeah, for sure, that makes sense. Um, and like you mentioned, you know, Black Cross was, uh, you know, another band, like you said, you worked with a, you know, very reputable indie label of equal vision and, um, uh, there was no, you know, uh, slavish devotion to, you know, playing a, being a part of the music industry and like, all right, well, you know, it's been 18 months, we got to put out a new record or any, any of that sort of stuff. Um, but I presume it was really, really exciting to play with people that you've kind of existed alongside of in the scene. I mean, I've, you know, clearly you've played with Duncan for many times, but, you know, playing with the, you know, Patterson's and all that sort of stuff. Was that just also another opportunity where you're like, oh, there's no way I could say no to this? Oh, no. You know, that was that was a different. So um, so Ryan is Ryan. Jurek, no, Ryan's maybe 40 now, 41. So he's not as young as you are. He um which is funny because you probably don't feel young. It's just that I'm starting to. I'm, sure, understood. <laughs> I'm creeping to fifty. It's like, oh no. Uh, so Ryan was younger and grew up in E Town, and then started playing more shows in Louisville, and then had moved to Louisville. And we, you know, didn't always see eye to eye. Like, um, for you know, we didn't know each other that well. I just knew that he was a, a good player. And I remember there was like a crazy fest and we're walking back. I was like, you know, we, we should do a band together. And he was like, oh, okay. And, um, and then, you know, we sat down and practiced. We, I pulled, we had Tommy because Tommy had been in the, by the grace of God with me. And he also been in Amarok and had been in, uh, had been at that time. Maybe, I don't know if he was still in Kendall's or not. Um, and then, you know, we practiced and then Evan was at the house one day and, and came down and practiced bass. And then it just, uh, um, so we kind of fell into it that way. I didn't know what it was going to be like to, to play with Ryan. Um, uh, doubt, you know, didn't realize it would be such a gift when I mean, those guys together were monsters, right? They're able to just bang out songs and, uh, and they pushed me in a whole different direction. I mean, those bands were really the first there was a couple songs on the first record that, you know, was could be linked to, Oh, this is kind of like hardcore kind of like stuff I'd done before, but this was really, you know, lots of parts, lots more kind of like Jehu influence, you know, it was a um, whole different time. And so playing with those guys, again, just loved it. And when we, when the bands would break up and there'd be a different iteration, we were like, all right, let's do this. Let's keep going. And I think it's because, uh, we, again, we developed a great friendship. Ryan is a fan, Ryan, well, and both the brothers and all the other guys associated with the bands are just fantastic people. And when I, so black cross was going strong. I decided to get married, which meant I definitely did not want to be on the road all the time for long periods of time. And at that point, we decided to keep it going, but it was also a catalyst for those two guys to kind of do Coliseum and to Young Widows, which was Breather Resist at the time. And so because I couldn't do as much, those bands really started moving forward, which kind of launched those guys into their own trajectory um, of, of just amazingly talented bands. And But we kept Black Cross kind of as a backburner 
kind of on the side. And that's when we decided to put out that last record on our own because we just thought it wasn't fair to, you know, we knew we weren't going to tour anymore. And so we didn't want to be beholden to um, Equal Vision. Um, and we knew it was, I mean, they, you know, it was gifted that they, that they signed us. Um, but it wasn't, you know, we wanted to just do something ourselves and not feel like we had to tour. And, and uh, so that's where Ryan, who was running a label auxiliary at the time, put that out. And it's still great. Like I said, we played our last, you know, so even when Evan stopped being at Black Cross broke up, we kind of still wanted to play together. So we, I don't, I can't remember how long it was. I don't think it was even a year. And we're like, well, let's just do another iteration. And so we got another drummer, Ben Sears, who was amazing. He did a tour with us and a, a European tour with By the Grace of God. Um, we got Nick to play bass, who was later joined Black Cross as a second guitar player. And then we, we started Black God. And uh, we broke up in, you know, we just broke up this year. And that was really hard because I just really love playing with those guys. They're such sweet, smart you know, we've people and we've seen each other, you know, for Ron and I have been together now playing it was for 17 years. And so we were able to see each other grow as musicians, but also as people. And it was a pretty powerful experience. Yeah, no, it's really cool. And I, I like that, you know, the kind of generational, um, you know, gap. Because when I say generation, I mean, like, you know, because I view like four years in punk and hardcore as different generations. That's <laughs> and so it's cool when people that you once, you know, like looked up to that you can kind of play and creatively, uh, you know, bounce ideas off each other where it's just like, Oh yeah. Like I like your band and it, you know, it goes both ways where it's like, you like the music that the younger people are playing. And then the younger people also like the music that you've played. And it just kind of, it works in that really, um, you know, fun environment as long as everybody obviously gets along. <laughs> oh no, of course. Yeah. Um, the uh, the last thing I want to hit on was the um, you know like you you mentioned before we started recording you know you moved to North Carolina and you know you're you're doing uh, you know a lot of research as a professor and everything like that um, you know was was that a difficult move for you just because you know you've been with Louisville for a very very long period of time and um, you know that's part of your identity and everything like that not like you lose that component of you but uh, you know has that been uh, an adjustment I presume yeah you know I thought it. So yes, initially, like it was really scary. So the position came around a year before. Um, I was I was sent a letter, a solicitation from UNC Charlotte to apply for the job, um, and I didn't apply. Um, and then the position wasn't filled. And the reason I didn't apply is I, you know, I, I was happy at the University of Louisville. I had so much going on. I mean, I feel like because I was in that town so long, any any definitely any boy of a certain age like I feel like I had met them before or you know they had been at some show or at least because there was the shows were there were so many shows in the early days they were so big it's like you go into a coffee shop you know people it was just really it, it was a really comfortable place to live um, it wasn't until the second year solicitation and I decided to apply for the job and again I think it came to this place of you know what I need to grow I need to continue um, music has always pushed me to grow, but my job um, had been we had been great. But I think I've been successful at my job, and I think I've well, gosh, I probably got twenty more years until I 
can stop doing this work. And if I kept doing the same thing at the University of Louisville in that job, then I wouldn't grow in that area. So I've kind of reached a point in my life, I think, where my work with people with disabilities and research in that area is, has, is equitable with the other parts of my life. Um, and, well, not including my wife and family, but they were willing to come with me. So, um, yeah, I mean, it is hard. You know, you go back and you're like, oh, I miss it. And, like, I know that right now I could probably go back to Louisville and find some folks to play with and maybe do some music, and that would be awesome. Um, whereas here in North Carolina, it's like, oh, it's a whole different scene. It doesn't have the same type of scene. Um, so that's that's kind of sad. But the familiarity, we were back over Christmas, and for some reason I, I just I felt okay, like, yeah, it's the right time to move and go. And, we're, and we go back, we, we go home a lot. Um, it's not a far, it's a direct flight. You know, we'll go home several times a year and go to the same haunts and see people that I know and love. And so, um, yeah, it wasn't that tough. That's cool. That's, I, yeah, yeah. I, it was tough to make the jump. And now that I'm here, I'm not regretting it. I don't, I don't feel necessarily homesick. Now it's only been six months, but, um, you know, a lot of my older, my closest, the patterns, Ryan's still there and a couple of Myron, the guy that got me into punk rock is still there. And there's still a lot of people that are there. Uh, but Duncan, you know, I only got to see him a couple of times a year anyway, cause he lives in South Dakota. Uh, another friend of mine, Peter Searcy, you know, he moved to Atlanta. So they, the people that I saw all the time when I was younger are, you know, are, have already had already left the town. So it's all right. No, it's cool. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, it is complicated when you have lived in a place for such a long time and you have so many roots and then, you know, to, to feel that out. And it's like, but yeah, it is, you always got to turn those pages. Cause otherwise, yeah, like you were mentioning at the very, very beginning before recording, it's like, yeah, if you stay too stagnant and there's not enough change, then yeah, you could just get complacent and bored. And, uh, at the end of the day, nobody wants that. <laughs> No, you know, I attribute like the longevity of playing music to probably meeting Ryan and them, you know, it's like Duncan had moved away and it was like, uh, what do I do? <laughs> I can play a couple notes on the guitar and you know, I did a couple other bands. Like we did a band called Al Shia that was really fun with some guys, but it was kind of short lived. And I did a band with my wife called Minnow. We put out a couple of records and that was really strange uh, and short lived, but with some really fun people. Um, but in terms of like a, a heavy kind of pounding band, it wasn't, I didn't, you know, Ryan and Evan forced me to sing different ways to, uh, you know, up until it, I hated the studio and, and point by the grace of God, I didn't feel confident. I hated my voice. It really wasn't until those guys really taught me to be comfortable in my skin, which was really, um, which I mean, I, I still can't believe it's all, it's almost like I had two punk careers like the po the pre 2001 with all the by the grace of god endpoints all that from 80 until then and then from 2001 until now it's like i had all these other bands that were a whole different you know led by different musicians that brought different things to the mix totally. yeah that's <laughs> totally, totally exciting lucky. i'm the luckiest guy in the world that's I'm I'm just very lucky yeah if you just you just happen to trip on some people to play some cool music with it's great Um, well, dude, thank you so much, Rob. This has been really fun for me and I've, uh, you know, been a fan of your music for quite some time. So this was uh, was a treat for me. So thank you. Oh, I appreciate that. I'm glad Josh put us in contact. This was amazing. 
Thank you, Rob, for that great discussion. I really, really enjoyed his uh, perspective on, you know, teaching and, you know, bands as a living. Like that's just, that's a subject I will never grow tired of talking about because I think so many people uh, over the years have approached playing in bands in such different manners. And I just, I, I love that discussion. So anyways, next month, the entire month of March is dedicated to the city of Seattle and people who have existed in and around the Seattle, you know, hardcore and punk and whatever you want to call it scene, the independent music scene, as it were. Uh, I'll bury the lead here by saying that I did not get Ben Gibbard to come on the podcast. Granted, I didn't reach out to him, but you know, that's, uh, that's some people just automatically assume where it's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. And if you're like, Oh, you're missing some people that are like, you know, obvious, obvious people to speak to. I probably have spoken to them already. Like, Oh, John Pettibone, like, dive back in the archives. I've already spoken to John. So anyways, these are four brand new guests, uh, that have never appeared on the show and are either have come from that scene and have, you know, moved on as far as like moving to different places or whatever. But these are people who have all been entrenched within the, uh, the Seattle hardcore scene, old, new and everything else in between. And next week's guest is Dan Gallucci, who is the guitarist for murder city devils. He also played modest mouse for quite some time. Also played in cold war kids is a podcast producer extraordinaire. And we had such a good conversation. I loved it. I think we could have talked for probably like two plus hours. It was really, really insightful and fun. So that's what we got next week. And like I always tell you, and I truly do mean it, please be safe, everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Hi there, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. We're real-life best friends, but we met playing fake-life best friends, Turk and JD, on the sitcom Scrubs. 20 years later, we've decided to re-watch the series one episode at a time and put our memories into a podcast you can listen to at home. We're going to get all our special guest friends like Sarah Chalk, John C. McGinley, Neil Flynn, Judy Reyes. Show creator Bill Lawrence, editors, writers, and even prop masters will tell us about what inspired the series and how we became a family. You can listen to the podcast Fake Doctors, Real Friends with Zach and Donald on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.
Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app.